Whom have I in heaven but you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It was the very worst, the most painful time in my entire life. For the first 12 years of my ministry, I had been campus minister at two different state universities in Louisiana. My whole professional identity, as well as a significant part of my self-image, involved working in one capacity or another on a college campus. And I never dreamed, I never dreamed that it could be otherwise. However, because of a couple of rather significant confrontations with our bishop at that time, I was told that I would not be appointed back as the campus minister from the Methodist Church to Northwestern State University. And my friends, that was a blow for me. In no way have I ever been hit harder than that. And not only me, it was a blow to our family as well because their hopes and dreams revolved around being there at Northwestern and in Natchitoches during that same period of time. Never mind that I was the president of the local ministerial alliance or that I had received several awards from the university for my work on campus. Never mind that I had been approached by several members of the faculty who wanted me to develop and then to teach religion courses on campus. According to the leadership of the Louisiana Annual Conference, I was going. I was inconvenient, they told me. And that was that. Northwestern was our alma mater. Mickey and I both had ties to that university way back to where it was the Louisiana State Normal School early in the 20th century. It was a place that we had met and fallen in love. Natchitoches is the town in which we had gotten married and it's the only hometown that Mike and Karen really remember. It was there we hoped. It was there we intended to spend the rest of our lives. But at this awful moment in my life, in our lives, all of my, all of our hopes and dreams, it seemed, all of our plans, and schemes seem to lay in ruins at my feet. 
I interviewed for a position as a chaplain at a small Methodist-related college in North Carolina. They chose somebody else. Then a church in the area that I had tentatively been offered on the outskirts of town rejected my appointment. After this, seeing no other recourse, I took a leave of absence and never intended to engage in ministry again. This meant not only would I be out of a job and all of that entails, but also with our parsonage system, it meant that we would soon be homeless barring some sort of miracle. About this time, Mike, our son, started uh, to develop his interest in music and in drama. And that spring, the local theater group put on Rogers and Hammerstein's 1945 musical, Carousel. Mike tried out for a part in the play and did indeed get a role in the chorus. And naturally, Mickey and I were going to attend every performance we possibly could. In case you've not seen it or don't remember, Karen Carousel takes place in a seaside town in New England around the turn of the last century. The storyline revolves around a carousel barker by the name of Billy Bigelow. And Billy's romance with Julie Jordan, a worker in one of the uh, local textile mills, result in both Julie and Billy losing their jobs. Well, sometime later, in order to provide for Julie and their unborn child, the unemployed Billy participates in an armed robbery during which he loses his life. And there's a scene in which Julie is trying to comfort the dying Billy. And as she did so, the chorus began to sing one of my favorite songs of all times. It even was before this, and it certainly is now. You'll never walk alone. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind. Walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on. Walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Needless to say, those were exactly the words that I, that we needed to hear during that dark and stormy point in my life. 
subplot, if you would, in the storyline involves a character always kind of in the background that was called Star Maker. And Star Maker benevolently observes the uh, goings-on down below from somewhat of a heavenly perch, so I need not tell you to whom Star Maker refers, do I? Although Star Maker doesn't seem to actively prevent any of the tragedies that seem to be unfolding and taking place, he does provide a sense of presence, a comfort to those in need. And in the background, Star Maker is working for good in spite of what has happened. Well, that play proved very prophetic for me. A few days after it had run its course, I was walking across campus with the director of alumni affairs at the university. And he casually asked me if I knew anyone who was looking for a house to rent. Duh. You're looking at him. And he told me it was owned by and was being rented by Betty Jones, who was the head of the local chamber of commerce, Phyllis. (laughs) I went back to my office and, and called Betty just as soon as I possibly could. And then in short order, the details of the rental were worked out. We would no longer be homeless in June. One prayer answered. That same afternoon, I was in the driveway playing basketball with Mike and Karen, as I did very frequently in the afternoons. And as we were doing that, the town's mayor, Joe Sampate, pulled up in my driveway. Joe lived just down the street from us. I talked to Joe just a few days earlier about whether or not he knew of any job possibilities, uh, any openings that uh, might fit my needs. And at the time, he didn't. But there in the driveway that afternoon, Joe asked me if I would come to work for him for the city of Natchitoches as a supervisor in the Department of Public Works. I was able to do that because of my construction background, understood at least a little bit of what was needed in that line of work. And although the salary was significantly less than what I had been making, I had a job. Two prayers answered. To say that I saw the hand of God in that moment would be a significant understatement. An understatement. And this was reinforced that that don't take this wrong. I'm going into a sensitive area here. But it was reinforced several months later when the bishop with whom I had had all of that trouble died in office. A retired bishop was appointed to fill out the last couple of years 
of his term. I found out later, I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later that during this time of my life, my parents' pastor, a man named Fred Shirley, made an appointment and then met with this interim bishop, told him all that had happened to me and what our current circumstances were. Among those was that we had by this time bought a house. Mickey had her own career on campus as director of housing for the university. She didn't want to leave it. Don't blame her. The kids were by now in high school. They didn't want to leave their school and their friends. They wanted to stay right there. Later, that bishop contacted me, asked to meet me, and during that meeting, he asked me that if he could appoint me to a church that would allow Mickey and the kids to stay there in Natchitoches while I went to serve this church on a location some miles away, would I accept it? So you bet. It's unlikely to tell you the truth that I would have gone back into ministry if this had not take pla taken place exactly the way it did. I accepted the appointment. They accepted me. And I was able to perceive another God thing working on my behalf. So it all turned out okay for me, for us. It wasn't exactly what we wanted. I was never able to achieve the hopes and dreams I have of spending my life on a college campus. But I realize now that God indeed had a hand in what eventually happened to me and for me. And I found as I read and studied Psalm 73, our scripture for this morning, that it really affirms what I just said and speaks to my heart in a very, very powerful way. King David's choir director was a man named Asaph. And Asaph, during his career, had written a number of hymns to be used in worship. And one of those hymns we find in Psalm 73, in which he affirmed, as we've read, Though my flesh and my heart may fail, and mine had, mine had, God, God is my strength and portion. Although we didn't read the earlier verses of Psalm 73 this morning, it begins with the psalmist feelings of deep frustration with and estrangement from God. He saw how the wealthy and the powerful, how the evil ones in his society seemed to get ahead while everybody else 
had to struggle. It appeared that God favored them and not him. Maybe you felt, felt that way sometimes. I sure have. He had tried to be a person of faith, a person of righteousness. But at the moment in his life when he began to write this hymn, it seemed to no avail. Then, however, he went into the sanctuary of the tabernacle, which was all they had then, a, a big tent. They hadn't, wouldn't build the, build the temple until the reign of Solomon, David's son. He went there into the tabernacle, and his heart, his spirit was changed almost immediately. And have you ever noticed that some churches, some Worship facilities just seem to have that effect on you. You walk in there and you feel, you sense, you're aware of the awesome presence of God. And so it was for Asaph. Not only did he feel the presence of the Almighty, but the sense of God's Innate goodness flooded his heart. And these powerful and mysterious moments became the consciousness by which he understood his life, his feelings, his faith, and the continued purpose of his life. And so for Asaph, the uncertainty of experience became the certainty of faith. I want you to catch this. The uncertainty of experience became the certainty of faith. And the presence of God the Almighty One transcended the moment and it became the underlying truth of Asaph's entire existence. For Asaph, the goodness of God was not defined by wealth or prestige, nor was it denied to, by the affliction of so many whom Jesus would, a thousand years later, call the poor in spirit. The hope of the truly faithful comes from their awareness of the near, nearness and the goodness of God. Regardless, regardless of their situation or circumstance. Author and Quaker pastor Philip Gully has read a book I recently read called the evolution of faith. And in it, Gully maintains that hopefulness, hopefulness is the one chief attribute of a deep, abiding, and mature faith. Hopefulness. Goodness knows. <laughs> Goodness knows we could use a heaping helping of that in these days. Can we not? 
Now, Gully isn't saying that everything always turns out for the best. We hear that said sometimes, but you know and I know that it's not always the truth. Life is sometimes just not very good to or for us, no matter how much faith we might possess. But Gully was indicating that people with a hopeful faith will look for, they will look for and eventually find the ultimate goodness of God. They will find the ultimate goodness of God in any situation in which they might find themselves. God, Gully says, is the universal impulse who inspires in, who breathes into us the desire to seek the best in and for life, for ourselves, for one another, for the world around us. God is the universal impulse who inspires in us the desire to seek the best in and for life, for ourselves, for others, and for the world around us. May it be so for us as we face these often trying and difficult days in which we now find ourselves. God bless you.